Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the 497th show of ROI. Our noted guest for today's show is Dr. Sharon Strokia, professor of history at Emory University, who is going to talk to us about part of being a domestic goddess in the 17th century Europe was making medicines. Joining us for the second segment of the show are history buffs Terry Toppler and Jay Swords. To begin with, we'd like to welcome our guests to the show. Dr. Sharon, how are you doing? Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing well. Thank you. Um, This is a privilege and an honor to talk about this, although... Oh, making medicine once again with my co-host. I mean, that's all he ever thinks about, but I know you'll take us down a great road. So can you start us off with some basic information on 17th century life of women in Europe? Sure. Um, so one of the uh, the points that uh, I was trying to make in the interview that you referred to about being a domestic goddess in 17th century Europe is that women at the household level, have a very high degree of what we would now call health literacy, meaning they knew a lot about how to diagnose health problems, they knew how to treat them, and moreover, they knew how to make medicines. Now, of course, these are not the medicines that we would use today, but nevertheless, they're part and parcel of a a management system, a household management system to keep the people in your family as well as they could be. Okay, so let us um, explain to our listeners uh, the 17th century household. I mean, uh, there's images out there. Of course, they've seen movies, and uh, with the Internet, I'm sure there's come across maybe some truth or stuff that's total bogus. Why don't you give them the premise of what it was like? Okay, well, that's a great question, John. Um, You know, I I would have to start by saying that Household vary, households across Europe varied a lot according to social class and the organization of the household, how many people lived in the same space, you know, who's really in charge of making various kinds of decisions. So much of that is really depending on where you fit into the social hierarchy. So, for example, if you're part of the aristocracy or you're a noblewoman, you have a very different set of resources, you have uh, different kinds of decisions that you're tasked with making on a daily basis. Then, for instance, if you're a servant or if you're a shopkeeper's wife, right? So that would be one of the first points I'd want to make about that. And second point, I think, would be that households vary a lot in their composition uh, right across Europe. So if we're talking about 17th century England, really looking at some very different features than if we're talking about 17th century Italy, because Italy has many more cities, it's a lot more urbanized, Um, England's pretty rural, so, you know, there are landed estates and so forth. So just those are a couple of points that I'd want to set out at the beginning. Okay. Differences Uh, by social class and then differences by locale. 
Okay. So wh- I know this is hard to more generalize, but when you were talking about the social classes, why don't you uh, tell our listeners the structure there? Because as you, you're, you're right, uh, the vastness of how people lived in Europe was um, immeasurable. But what are the basic social classes that are kind of consistent throughout the continent? Okay. Yeah. So let me start at the top, which is exactly where Europeans would have started. They would have start. They would have started at the top of the pinnacle, and so there you would have the nobility, right? The nobility who are born, kind of by accident, into this elite group, and you know they didn't do much to deserve it or to earn it, but they were just by accident of birth part of this very. Um, wealthy and privileged group. Then I think the next group that we would want to look at would be um, merchants and bankers who are also well-off, well-traveled. They circulate information and goods around Europe. That's true for England as well as Italy, Germany, Spain, France, and so forth. Um, And probably next, I think, other uh, the, the next group down in the social hierarchy that people would recognize would be artisans and shopkeepers. These would be people we'd meet on an everyday basis, people we'd go to to have our shoes made or to buy our bread or you know, to have a piece of furniture made or repaired, carpenters and, and the like. Uh, so people with skills and oftentimes owned a shop. And then below that would be day laborers, people who did pickup work. Um, In the countryside, it would be um, uh, people who did agricultural work and so forth. Okay. Well, asking this question then, you've done a marvelous job setting up the social structure. How does making medicines fit into this? I mean, you've already pointed out that, of course, the aristocratic class is probably going to have more supplies, uh, greater education, maybe a better understanding. But, of course, the lower classes might have more hands-on and uh, more practical answers and not maybe driven with myth. So how does medicine fit into all this in um, as best you can explain? Yeah, that's a great question, John. Well, I, I think one of the things I would want to argue is that um, women in European society in the 17th century, up and down the social spectrum, have a remarkable understanding of the human body, and they understand, you know, to a greater or lesser degree, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush here, um, but they, they would have an understanding about what kinds of medicines were suitable for what kinds of ailments. Now, I wouldn't suggest that people, you know, just know that, um, you know, because they're imbibing it through the air or the water, um, but that there's a lot of knowledge and circulation, um, particularly in cities and towns, um, where women of, of different ranks of households, certainly the aristocracy, but also shopkeepers' wives, um, domestic servants, they have a pretty good understanding of what a condition looks like, what kinds of medicines are called for, and then here I think is the key point for our conversation today, how do you make that medicine? Because medicines are very expensive. And so for um, a household, you know, from say the middle tier down, to go to the local apothecary and buy medicines 
that's going to really put a strain on budgets. Okay. So it's much more, you know, in, in the the favor of household economy, saving your pennies, um, to have uh, somebody who knows how to make the medicine in-house. Okay. Uh, this concludes our first segment known as Farukta Naran, and we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. At a time when misinformation is all too common on social media, we take great pride in bringing you the news that matters, that impacts your family, news you can trust. Local broadcast journalists bring you the facts, covering the stories breaking in our community and across the globe. Text RADIO to 52886 and let Congress know you depend on local journalism. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the second segment of our show, which is referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our noted guest for today is Dr. Sharon Strokia, professor of history at Emory University, and we're talking about part of being a domestic goddess in the 17th century Europe was making medicines. Our history buster today show are Terry Toppler and Jay Swords. And Terry, why don't you start us off? Thank you, John. So, Sharon, you talked about women back then had quite a lot of knowledge in health literacy um, and that a lot of this knowledge was in circulation. But how was this knowledge shared and preserved for generations to come, considering perhaps the literacy rate for women at that time? Yeah, what a wonderful question, Terry. I would want to point to two things. One is the written evidence, and the other is the the verbal or the oral circulation of information, which is so much harder to get a, a handle on. But to, to talk first about the, the written evidence, um, most of the information that historians um, are discovering of late come in the form of what are called recipe books. Now, when I've spoken with my students about recipe books, the first thing that comes to mind, of course, is cooking, right? culinary recipes. And that is a good association to have because many of the ingredients that work in cooking also work for medicinal purposes. So, for instance, um, if you're looking at something like um, various herbs, or different kinds of fruit, um, fruits to settle your stomach, or different natural substances. Um, you know, all of those are part and parcel of the kitchen, right, and the, the 17th century kitchen, and they can be used for um, cooking purposes as well as medicinal purposes. So those recipe books are basically collections of recipes that can serve a whole variety of purposes, some of which are, um, you know, quite practical in, in their nature, like how do you get a stain out of a nice piece of clothing or something like that, um, as well as, you know, how do you, how do you cook the best apple pie and how do you soothe a sore throat? 
Um, so those kinds of recipes are all jumbled up together in recipe books. And particularly at the upper levels of society where there is a higher literacy rate for women, they are basically tasked by their families, by their um, relatives, with keeping a kind of tradition of recipes, the best way you can make the syrup that will soothe someone's um, cough or sore throat, the best apple pie you can make, and so forth. So many of these recipe books are handed down as heirlooms from one generation to another. And again, that's true whether we're talking about England or Italy. Um, So these are very, very precious documents um, that really have a lot of family meaning and family resonance. So the written evidence, you know, for women tends to cluster in recipe books. And that kind of uh, collection of recipes really gives us a sense of um, the, the kind of depth of knowledge that many women, not all, but many women had in terms of healing. So other ways of just thinking about that in terms of written evidence are uh, recipes of that may have circulated via letter or what are often called commonplace books where somebody will just jot down uh, a recipe that, you know, their neighbor had told them or, um, you know, somebody who they trusted uh, in, their, in their circle of trusted knowers. Someone had told them about that worked really well for you know, particular skin rash or something of that nature. So many different kinds of um, written evidence. I would say, by and large, I would want to single out recipe books, letters, and then these kind of assortments, these miscellanies called commonplace books. Jay. So I'm just interested, you know, if you're going to have a recipe, you've got to be able to get ingredients in order to make it work. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. How many of these ingredients are sort of commonplace sorts of things that you could get your hands on very easily? And how many of these ingredients um, are more unique, things that, that you might have to go buy or that would be hard to get to? And, and I'm really thinking, again, in terms of socioeconomics, because I would imagine, you know, if you're talking about more difficult things to get, then it helps to be better off. You can afford to go down to the apothecary and buy a jar of St. John's Ward or whatever it is that you need. So can you talk to us a little bit about the materials that are part of the, the recipes? Sure. That's a great question, Jay. Yeah, so sourcing. Where do people get these ingredients? You know, again, we're going to you know, have a different answer to that question depending on where you live. Because what you can source locally in, say, Florence is going to be different than what you can source in London, right? Um, So just because you can grow different kinds of medicinal, you know, in those different climates and locales. So a number of, um, we know a number of recipes, you know, will use substitutions based on what is available locally, and what they can get from, say, local herb growers or wise women who are uh, in the market selling different kinds of medicinal plants, you know, at, at a good market price, just like you go to um, a farmer's market today. Um, so a lot of, yeah, I would say, the bulk of medicinals that we have recorded in these recipe books are, are pretty much locally sourced. And that means they're fresh. 
you know, and somebody is also putting a pair of eyeballs on them and, you know, can tell whether they're, you know, um, good, in good shape or whether they're dried out or whatever the case may be. But as you suggest, you know, you can't grow everything locally, right? And you can't obtain all ingredients, you know, from your kitchen garden. So in those cases, you do have to have suppliers and you do have to go down to the apothecary or in Catholic countries in particular, you can go to your local convent or monastery. Um, Many of those institutions also uh, run uh, commercial apothecary shops and they would have, you know, shelves and shelves and shelves of different ingredients that they would sell to the public. Those ingredients sometimes seem a little odd to us, a little, you know, a little foreign and strange to us. Um, They may include, you know, some kind of minerals um, in some, at the very, very upper levels for apothecaries who are servicing, say, courts and nobles. They might include um, crushed or ground gemstones to include in, in a recipe. So apothecary shops have a lot of stuff and they want to have things that are special, but that have a long shelf life so that they don't have to throw anything away. Okay. Um, back to the issues of medicinal um, ingredients. Have you come across uh, any um, writings or transcriptions of uh, trial and error where you had some wives try something different and they documented or... It was discovered that no, it didn't work out. It was actually quite derogatory or dangerous. I mean, and that's been going on in all the medical profession since day one. Have you come across yeah. any instances where you're like a bunch of wives said, "Yep, tried that out on Paul, and you know it didn't work out." Not that it's for the worse, but you know it, it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't a good deal. Have you come across that? I, all the time, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You see the good and the so, bad, I guess. Know, <laughs> yeah, no, literate women are always interested in questions of efficacy. Does it work? Is it good? So there are a couple ways to think about this. One is in terms of trying out a, a recipe, just like you try out, well, maybe if I increase the amount of sugar, or if I put in a little bit more cinnamon, you know, into my pie, it might be a little bit better. I'm going to just try that out through trial and error. And most of the time for culinary recipes, you know, it, it's a waste of food if you don't like it, but, you know, it won't be lethal. <laughs> yeah. Least, right? um, it won't kill you. Um, and so, you know, some of the women householders that I've been talking about, again, this is pretty much across Europe as far as we know, you know, will try out certain kinds of adjustments to a recipe that they may have inherited from their mother or may have gotten from a neighbor or a friend because maybe they don't like the smell of the, the base, right, the oil that was used or the fat that was used. Maybe they don't like the texture, Maybe they don't like the color, right? And so there's a lot of experimentation with some of the basic things, you know, that for which we have, you know, a, a huge choice now in terms of, say, cosmos- what we would often call cosmeceuticals, right? Skin lotion, stuff like that, you know. Um, we would prefer one thing over another. So the trying out, you know, is absolutely commonplace. 
Okay. Terry. The testing, yeah, the testing where there's more structure, you know, where you're really kind of observing and you're, you know, um, checking the dosage and you're making sure that, you know, it's administered at the same times and all of that. Women are less involved in that at the household level, but they are involved in that kind of testing um, as consumers, for sure, and also as participants in those kinds of more structured trials. So, you know, there's a couple ways to, to approach that sense of, you know, how do we get what we've got in terms of the medicinals? And how do we get what we really want, you know, in terms of everyday remedies? Sharon, can you talk about some of the oldest uh, household recipe books that you've come across? Oh, that's a great question, Terry. Some of the oldest. Um, the ones that I've come across personally probably date to mostly the 1400s. And the, we can be very sure that they belong to a certain family because they often say right at the get-go, you know, this is the household re- re- recipe book of the Bardi family, right? I work mostly in Italian sources. So mid, mid-1400s, mid late-1400s, when we get to the 1500s, then we see a big increase in the, the maintenance of uh, these manuscript records. And when we get to the, by, say, 1550, we're seeing a lot of published recipe books that women may, you know, they may borrow from a neighbor and then they copy down, you know, one or two or three recipes, you know, into their manuscript handwritten book. So, you you know, there's just a lot of circulation there. Um, The ones that I've looked at mostly are 15th, 16th, and 17th century materials. Jay. So I'm I'm interested because it certainly is true in, in even in a country as advanced medically as as the United States that there's a difference often between what you can get if you're in a city and what you can get if you're in a country uh, if you're out mm-hmm. in the countryside um, and it's not always on the side of the city folk by the way sometimes being in the country helps so I'm just inter- interested if you can talk a little bit about. Um, differences between urban and rural that you've noticed in your research? Yeah, that, that is a really important question, Jay. Um, you know, the sources do tend to favor the urban areas, with a few exceptions. Um, and here's where we get to that intersection with class that I talked about earlier. So if we think about the areas of Europe that are you know, where there's like vast uh, tracts and and estates. It would be pretty much Germany and England, um, less well urbanized compared to, say, Holland, you know, in the low countries or Italy. Um, In those areas, we have more recipe books kept by noble women, right? And those noble women have a kind of charitable duty to make medicines for the people who live on their estates. So they're making medicines not only for their immediate family members, for their, quote, household that we referenced earlier, but they're also making medicines to give away to their peasants, you know, to their uh, stable hands, um, to their smithies, and so forth. 
So, you know, it's a kind of different, what you might call a different economy at work there, where, you know, women are tasked, noble women in, in particular, are tasked with this kind of charitable function. Okay. So uh, there are fewer, you know, um, outlets, fewer shops, right, apothecary shops in the country. And so noble women in those areas will essentially absorb those functions, you know, as domestic estate managers in giving away, you know, medicines. Of course, it's to their advantage to do that because then they have a very healthy, productive labor force on their estate. Um, I might just say one more thing, if I could, about um, sure. <laughs> you know how that works out in terms of urban and rural. Um, I think, Jay, you asked, uh, you know, you kind of alluded to the possibility that there might actually be more medicinal resources in the countryside. And I think that's a really important point. So some of the uh, materials, you know, that are very commonplace in both cooking and in medicine, saffron would be an example. Um, you know, you can only, it's a very low producing kind of um, uh, plant. And, you know, you can only grow it essentially in, you know, big uh, parcels uh, in the countryside. And then that would be imported into cities. So you actually have greater access to some medicinals if you're, you know, if you're a rural worker or uh, if you live out in the country. Okay. It is customary to give our guests the last word on the show. Sharon, we literally have a minute, so why do you think knowing about women's involvement in medicine in the 17th century is relevant in today's world? Oh, what a fantastic question. I think it's important because both in the 17th century and today, I think that women's medical labor in particular goes unrecognized. And I think that's particularly true if you look at caregiving. And what we all experienced when we went through the worst days of the COVID pandemic, where women were leaving their jobs to take care of their families, um, where in the 17th century, you know, they are um, doing multiple jobs at the same time, right? But they're not compensated and they're not recognized. So I think this, this kind of interest in what happened in the past can shed light on what's going on for us today in saying that, you know, this kind of care work, this kind of medical knowledge that we just take for granted is something that we really ought to appreciate and compensate more uh, more fully. Okay. Uh, Jay, quick, why do you think it's relevant in today's world? Well, I, I think we have a tendency living in a modern world where we produce nothing ourselves, okay. where we're constantly going. You know, it's nice to know that, that there were... That, that folks, we, we constantly think that people in the past were dumb or ignorant or couldn't. And it's nice to know that they're doing really cool things and taking care of themselves and doing so efficiently. Um, you know, we really aren't as far as advanced as, as maybe we want to believe sometimes. Hey, Terry, quick one. Yeah, I think the same as, uh, as what Jay had said. Uh, just knowing that women had an enormous health literacy back at that time period and were part of deciding how to, you know, help their husband and and children and so on with different health crises. Okay. When we come back, we'll wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI and KALA, St. Ambrose University 106.1 FM. 
you're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes the 497th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley, and we would like to thank our noted guest, Dr. Sharon Strokia, the professor of history of, at Emory University, who talked to us about part of being a domestic goddess in the 17th century Europe was making medicines. The History Buster today's show were Terry Toppler and Jay Sorts. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pulanala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.